This afternoon we'll get directly to the issue of how the teachings on karma apply directly to the practice of meditation. And the first issue is the relationship to motivation. Why do you meditate? How does the teaching on karma relate to that? You might want to look at passage number nine, which is on page three in the, in the readings. <coughs> Now, based on what line of reasoning should one often reflect that I am the owner of my actions, heir to my actions, born of my actions, related through my actions, and have my actions as my arbitrator? Whatever I do, for good or for evil, to that will I fall heir. And the answer is, there are beings who conduct themselves in a bad way, in body, in speech, and in mind. But when they often reflect on that fact, that bad conduct in body, speech, and mind will either be entirely abandoned or grow weaker. In other words, when you reflect on the fact that you basically shape your life through your actions, and if you see that you're causing suffering for yourself or for others, you realize you've got to straighten out your act. And when you reflect further on the issue that the problem is caused by the mind through your views, through your intentions, through your lack of mindfulness, or through your lack of willpower, then meditation is a good way to solve those problems. It's a set of skills you develop so that you become more skillful in your actions. So when reflect on the fact that you are the owner of your actions, that gives you what's called a right view on the mundane level. Just on a basic level, to have a decent human life, you need to meditate develop the skills you need in order to be more careful in how you act. Now the second paragraph of that passage goes on. A disciple of the Noble Ones considers this. I am not the only one who is the owner of my actions, etc. To the extent that there are beings, past and future, passing away and re-arising, all beings are the owners of their actions, heir to their actions, born of their actions, related through their actions, and have their actions as their arbitrator. Whatever they do for good or for evil to that will they fall heir. When he and she often reflects on this, the factors of the path take birth. When you stick with that path, develop it, cultivate it. As you stick with that path, develop it and cultivate it, the fetters are abandoned and obsessions are destroyed. This is a slightly different reflection. In other words, it's not just you, it's everybody. No matter where you could be reborn, no matter where you could go in life, this life or the next life, you're still stuck with your actions. And this gives rise to a sense of what's called sangwega, a sense of dismay about samsara, the process of samsara as a whole. And no matter where you go, everybody is still subject to their actions. No matter how good it gets, it's still easy to stumble on it. Stumble, so as long as you stay within the cycle, you're always going to be subject to the results of actions. And you know how arbitrary and difficult it is to control your intentions. This takes you past just plain old ordinary right view and puts you into a transcendent right view. You realize this is time to work on a path that takes you out of the cycle of suffering entirely. When you see the universality of the principle of karma. This connects with a passage we read yesterday on transcendent right view. These are the views you need to develop in order to gain that release.
So that passage relates to our how karma relates to the motivation behind meditation. But the teaching on karma also relates to the actual process of what you do in the meditation. It explains, as I said yesterday, why you focus on the present moment. Because where is intention going to be perceived? Where are all the things that relate to intention? It's all right here in the present moment. Because of that principle that we call scale invariance, that if you want to see the, the way the world functions, you look at the present moment. Okay, this is why we focus on the present moment in our meditation. It also explains why meditation is a doing. We talked about the, the theory of resonances, that by mastering the processes of the causality, you can actually get out of the causal system, because there are these resonant points. What the Buddha called the karma to end karma, that leads to the point where the mind doesn't fashion anything anymore. As John Lee gives an analogy for meditation, he says it's like it's like salt water. <clears throat> you take a beaker of salt water and you set it on the table. No matter how long it sits there, the salt is not going to settle out. You have to do something to the water, even though there's already pure water there in the salt water. There has to be something done to the water to get the salt out. In the same way, the, our lack of mindfulness, our unskillful intentions are things we actually have to work with, we things that we deal with, rather than just sitting and letting everything settle out. So this is why equanimity is it's, it's a useful element in the path, but it's not the ultimate goal. And there's more to right effort than just equanimity. The Buddha says there are some things that you actually have to make an active effort to uproot in the mind. Equanimity, in some cases, can simply watch defilements pass away, and that's the end of that particular defilement. But in other cases, they're more tenacious, and they actually require a, a doing. So this is why we do the meditation. In terms of the breath meditation, this explains one of the reasons why we adjust the breath, play with the breath, experiment with the breath, because you learn about the causal process and the process of doing that. The teaching on karma also gives perspective on how, how you do the meditation. You regard it as a skill, and all the issues that need to be developed in the meditation, all the mental qualities that you would need to develop a skill, mindfulness, discernment, persistence, all of these things that come into the meditation. This is one of the reasons why the Buddha, when he explains meditation, will also use, often use analogies drawn from as a, being an archer, being a carpenter, being a cook, all the things that you need to do in order to develop a skill. And think about it, when you develop a skill, what's needed? One, there has to be the desire to do it. You have to see that this is something important. This, this is one of the reasons why desire is an, an important element in the path. Without the desire for the results, you, know, you don't be able to devote the time and the energy that's going to be needed. But at the same time, you need to learn how to focus the desire properly so it doesn't lead you off. In other words, it's like going to a mountain on a horizon. If you spend the time driving and looking at the mountain down the road, what's going to happen? You drive off the road. But if you focus on the road, you know, okay, this road goes to the mountain. You check, make sure, okay, we're going in the same general direction as the mountain. Okay, then you focus your attention on the road, and that's what's going to get you to the mountain. So you learn how to focus your desire in the right place. It's not a process of denying desire or trying to 
eliminate desire. It's more a process of learning how to take your desire and focus it in the proper way. In the same way with, with effort. We've all heard that story about Ananda who was trying too hard to gain awakening and finally gained awakening when he began to relax a bit. And we all think, well, that must be my problem. I just need to relax more. <laughs> We'd like to be there. We'd like to have that, the solution to our problems. But what the Buddha said, okay, it requires persistence. You have to stick with it. It's simply a, method, a matter of learning exactly how much effort is needed right now, given the situation that you have. In some cases, as I said, just watching what's going on in the mind is going to be enough to see through some of the problems that are there. And other times you have to take a more active attitude. So thinking about meditation as part of this karma to put an end to karma, and you realize that since the issue is skillfulness, reflect on whatever skills you've ever developed in the past and realize those same qualities that you used to develop that skill are going to be very useful in the meditation. I had a student one time out at the monastery, <clears throat> and he was having precisely this problem. There were days when he just wanted, wanted, wanted to meditate, and just the one the desire was getting in the way, and other days when he had no desire at all, and that wasn't helping either. And so he came to me with a question, and I said, well, think about whatever skill you developed in the past, and then apply that same balance to developing the skill of meditation. And he went back that night and he came back the next morning and he says, you know, I don't have any skills. <laughs> and a few days later I saw him saw a block of wood and I said, you don't have any skills. <laughs> and he looked at me and said, you mean there's a skill to sawing? <laughs> I said, that's your problem right there. <clears throat> also related to the question of how the doctrine of, or the teaching on karma relates to the meditation is that the distinction between past karma and present karma helps give you a proper focus to where you're going to focus your attention in the present moment. You focus at your intentions. Exactly what element are you, what are you doing right now? Because you realize the potential for freedom lies right around in that area where the intention is happening. As the Buddha said, if the intention were not the creative force for experience, simply ending it would not end suffering. But the fact that intention is so elemental in everything we experience, once you start changing those intentions, that's going to change your experience of things radically. So this is where you want to focus your, your attention, is seeing the intentions that are formed in the mind, how the mind forms things. And one way of doing that is to learn how to form a good state of concentration in the mind. In other words, if you want to understand intention, be very, focus on a really good intention and learn how to master that. Get skillful at that one intention. And that way you begin to see how you understand the process of intention a lot better. It's like learning about eggs. You can sit and look at an egg for days and days and days, and how much would you know about the egg? Not much. But if you take it and try to make a souffle, try to make omelets, try to make scrambled eggs, whatever, you learn a lot about the eggs. And at the same time, you get to eat. <laughs> It's the same with concentration practice. On the one hand, you get the pleasure of the concentration, i.e. you get to eat. And at the same time, you learn, begin to learn a lot about the mind in the process of trying to get it to settle down. One of the big issues we all have as we tr start doing concentration practice is the distractions that come into the mind. We find the mind wandering off. 
you say, oh my gosh, when am I going to be done with this stage in the meditation? And you try to rush through that to get to some ideal of the mind where there's no distraction. It's actually in learning how to deal with distraction you're going to learn a lot about the mind. So look at it as an opportunity. How to bring the mind back. What's required to bring it back. In some cases, all you have to do is note the fact that the mind is distracted. That's enough to bring it back. Kind of a simple reminder. In other cases, though, you have to dig deeper. The Buddha actually gives five techniques for dealing with distraction. One is just simply noting that the mind is distracted and giving it a better thing to think about. In the case of the meditation, what this means is bringing it back to its basic topic. Or if you find that the basic topic is hard to stay with, give it something better to focus on. And this is one of the reasons why the Buddha did not teach only one concentration method. He taught lots of methods. Because people's proclivities change, change and people have different preferences. Some people like the breath, other people like to contemplate the body. Other people prefer a mantra to bring the mind down. So notice whatever it is that helps the mind settle down. Second method dealing with distraction is if the mind keeps going back, even though you try to give it better and better topics to think about or better and better objects to focus on, if it keeps going back to that particular distraction, sit down and ask yourself, okay, what are the drawbacks of going here? What would happen if I thought about this particular type of thought all day? Where would this lead me? And in the process of thinking about that thought, am I feeling pleasure or am I feeling stress? In other words, look for the drawbacks of that kind of thinking until the point the mind, it, you, it loses its attraction, it loses its allure, and then the mind is more willing to drop it. The third method is, even if analyzing it in that way doesn't help, then you consciously ignore the thought. In other words, you know it's there in the mind, but you say, look, my breath is still here, it's not destroyed. No matter how bad the bells are in the morning, they don't destroy your breath. You just sit there and it's still there. You can focus your attention there. It's kind of like a crazy person coming to you and trying to talk to you while you've got a job to do. And if you turn and talk to the crazy person, they've got you. What you have to do is just pretend like the crazy person is not there and just keep doing your job. And the crazy person will say more and more outrageous things to get your attention, but after a while it'll, the person will see that you're really not paying any attention to go away. They lose interest. And a lot of the thoughts in our mind is just like that. Crazy person's coming to talk to us. So just pay them no mind. The fourth method that he gives is seeing where the process of creating a thought requires an element of fabrication or an element of tension in the body or the mind and then allowing that to relax. This works especially well if you've had some practice dealing with the breath in different parts of the body. You begin to sense that when you think, there's going to be tension in different parts of the body. If you locate the tension that goes with the thought, relax the tension, and it's gone. The thought will disappear. Then the fifth method is, if none of these other methods work, they say it's like a you use your mind to beat down your mind. In other words, you just grit your teeth, press your tongue against the top of your, the roof of your mouth and say, I will not think that thought, and just squeeze it out. And if we think of these five methods as um, tools in a toolbox, this is the sledgehammer. <laughs> bang the thought out of your head. Now, as we all know, we, sledgehammers are not delicate instruments. 
but it's good to have a sledgehammer in your toolkit if you need it. So. And that usually works up to a point, and then by that point things have calmed down a little bit, and maybe one of the other methods will actually work. The first four methods actually require a certain amount of understanding. But it's in the process of learning how to bring the mind back from its different distractions. You learn a lot about the factor of intention in your mind. So when there is a distraction, don't see it simply as you know, a failure in the meditation. That This is a part of the mind you're going to have to learn about. In addition to focusing, your focusing on intention as an, an important element in the present the teaching on karma also focuses on what the Buddha calls attention. It's the way we frame issues in our mind. And particularly it comes down to learning how to see things in terms of cause and effect. When states come up in the mind, realize, okay, this particular state comes from a cause and it's going to have an effect. If I latch on to it, it's going to have an effect as well. This, is, this helps to prevent your getting into, say, a state of concentration and thinking that you've reached the ground of being or some sort of metaphysical absolute. Realize you did something to get there. There must be an intentional element in there. So the, the, the issue of an attention means to look at this, whatever comes up, in terms of cause and effect. This issue, this perspective also applies to issues of pleasure and pain coming up in the meditation. When pain, when pain comes, see, how, do, how can you understand it? Where is this where is the pain coming from? And can you also see the distinction between physical pain and mental suffering? And then the question is, okay, if there's mental suffering, where does the mental suffering come from? See it as part of a cause and effect process, rather than as simply as something you're just stuck with. When pleasure comes in the meditation, we talked about this earlier this morning, when pleasure comes, you don't just wallow in it. You say, okay, there must be a cause for the pleasure and try to learn how to observe in such a way that you don't destroy the pleasure and at the same time you begin to get a sense of the cause. Also see the, okay, where does the pleasure lead you? Certain forms of pleasure, like the pleasure that comes from concentration, actually leads you to a state of mind where it's, it's easier and easier to gain wisdom, to gain discernment. So those kinds of pleasure are actually worthy of cultivation. In other words, they're nothing to be afraid of. One of the main insights that Buddha gained as he was approaching awakening you know the story that he indulged in all well first he he lived all those years in the palace and indulged in all kinds of sensual sensual pleasures and that didn't work and then he went out in the forest and what's typical with people who've been really indulgent he went to the other extreme okay total self-torture self-mortification that didn't work and then the question came up in the mind his mind okay is there a middle way and he was trying to think of various middle ways and he thought of the pleasure that comes from a concentrated mind and having been you know, torturing himself for all those years, he said, okay, am I afraid of that pleasure? He says, well, yes, I am. And the question is, well, why are you afraid of that pleasure? Look at it. Where does it lead? He said, it doesn't lead to anything bad. It doesn't lead to anything unskillful. So there's nothing to be feared in that pleasure. This is why you can, you can search the canon, and the Buddha will never talk about the dangers of getting stuck in concentration. And say concentration is something you should really should develop as part of the skills you, skills you need in meditation. Finally, the, 
the perspective of karma points us to this whole issue of perception and feeling in the mind. The labels that the mind gives to things and the feelings that arise from the labels and then the labels that are applied to the feelings. And in particular, as you get into states of concentration, the Buddha calls all the various levels of jhana perception attainments. In other words, you take a particular label and you place it, say, on the breath, and you just stick stick with that way of labeling things. Just think breath, 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 breath in the back of your mind. Until the breath settles down, you've got the whole body very still. The breathing gets to the point where you're actually breathing through your pores, and you don't need the regular in and out breath. Things get very still. At that point, your perception changes to space. And then you will notice that your experience of your body, simply by changing that perception, is going to change. Did I tell the story of the, the woman in the, in the fire and the, in the wind last week? My teacher had a student who was a, she herself was a high school teacher in Bangkok. She taught at one of the main academies there near the palace. And she had very strong powers of concentration. He'd say, sit down, get your mind to settle down, boom, be down for the whole hour. And the kind of concentration everybody would like to have, right? Well, what I'm going to tell you is make you realize that you, could, you don't have to be jealous of her because she had problems. Um, her concentration was so strong she couldn't get out of it. You had to tell her, okay, now's the time to get out. Okay, she'd come out. It was that, it was that heavy. And once she'd gotten to the point where her, the, the breath was still in the body, my teacher's normal course, once you reach that point in your meditation, was to have you think about the various elements or properties that make up your sense of the body, which are, you know, there's wind, fire, earth, and water. And he would say, could look at these, the sensations that would correspond to them, like for once the breath was still, and he would say, okay, look, at, look for the warmth in the body. Once you've found a spot in the body that's warmer than the other ones, focus on that, and then think of the warmth spreading to fill the whole body from that one point, kind of radiating out. And then from there, he'd say, have you think about water. In this case, he'd say, look at the cool sensations in the body. This was a very useful meditation in Bangkok. You know, you're stuck in a bus, and the wind is not moving, and there's nothing, nothing happening. You just think, okay, cool, 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 and it gets cool inside. And then you think of earth. Think of the solidity of the body. And then he would have you sort of mix them all together so it was you know, not too warm, not too cold, not too heavy, not too light. It's just like Goldilocks, just perfect. You know? Okay. Okay, and then when the body was just right, then you'd have you think of space. Take space as your, as your object. And then you say, okay, drop the perception of space and move to the perception of just knowing, right, consciousness. That way you cover all six of the properties. And all of those states depend on that one perception that you keep in mind, whether it's warmth or coolness or whatever, space. Only in her case, and she didn't explain this to him until much later, she would have a visual image of it, and she'd just stare at the image, and that was her concentration. This is why it was difficult to get out, because this staring kind of concentration tends to get you locked in, and it's hard to pull out. In her particular case, okay, after she'd finished with, with, earth, with, with breath, okay, now we'd say fire, okay, fire, and then she started sweating, because it was so hot. And then when she came out, she didn't really come out. She was sort of with fire for the entire day, which is not an ideal state in Bangkok. You know? <laughs> Especially when you're teaching in a high-class academy and you're sweating in front of all your students. So she went back that night and she said, I don't like this. 
And he said, well, if you don't like it, this, we can, if you don't like the heat, we can make it cool. Can you think about water? So she said, thought about water. But she got this vision of all the disgusting liquids in her body. There was blood and there was bile and blah. And, it was, and she had this bad smell that went along with it. And again, it wouldn't go away. She came out of meditation and she was still water, this disgusting water in her body walking around for the whole day. So she goes back and what kind of meditation are you teaching here? She said, and he said, okay, if you don't like water, let's try earth. Well, earth, earth was even worse. Earth was heavy. It was, she said it later, to, she told me it was like being a walking cesspool, just nah, walking around very heavy and disgusting throughout the day. So she went back and she said, I don't like this. He said, I said, there's nothing you can't solve. Okay, if you sit there, okay, get, get into concentration. So she got into concentration. He said, okay, now think of space. And as he told me later, as soon as he had said space, she started groping around. Her body had disappeared from that. Then her problem was that she couldn't get onto consciousness. And she wouldn't explain why. And I don't think she understood why from the end of the beginning. Her second problem was that she was from a noble family. Very high-born, very well-educated. And a lot of John Fuhring students were not from noble families, were not well-educated. And she didn't like talking about her problems in front of them. And this had always been an issue between the two of them because he noticed her pride and he would try to needle her a little bit to get rid of the pride. She just hated that. And so sometimes she would come and she'd sit in the corner of the room kind of moping and he would say, what's wrong? And she'd kind of look around to see who's in the room and she said, you know. <laughs> and then cut up and leave. <laughs> and for some reason, it was okay for him to talk, for them to discuss her problems in my presence. So if I happened to be there, okay, We'd go into another room and we'd sit there and you know, she'd talk a little bit about her problems. But it, it took her about six months to finally get out with the fact that she hadn't been really focusing on her body. She'd been focusing on these visions and staring at them. And that was why she couldn't get to consciousness because she couldn't think of a mental image for consciousness. So when she got that cleared up, okay, then there was no problem. But what you see... What, I saw as a result of this, and also seeing further on in my own practice, is that the difference between these states of, of jhana, once you get the mind to settle down so it's really still and there with equanimity, the only difference is in the perception. Whether you think space, or a little bit more refined than there's consciousness, or more refined than that, there's nothingness, when you drop the oneness of the mind. So this is one of the reasons why it's important to practice strong states of concentration, so you begin to see the connection between perception and feeling. That there's a lot of the Buddha's teachings, particularly his teachings on the five aggregates, become a lot clearer when you have good strong states of concentration because this is how your experience presents itself by going through the levels of concentration. Another lesson that can be drawn from the teachings on karma excuse me, as applied to meditation is that theory of resonance that we mentioned a little bit earlier. That you can use thought to get yourself out of thought worlds. So you get in a really negative thought world that's, that's causing you problems. You can stop and think, okay, what is the intention for creating this thought world? In other words, you realize that it is a creation. It's based on your intention. And simply asking that question helps to pull you out.
And then finally, as we just mentioned earlier in the morning, that the, the proper attitude to the ups and downs and mistakes in the meditation can also be developed through looking, looking at it in the terms of the teaching on karma. You realize that because things are complex, the fact that you do have ups and downs is not a sign that you're, you're a miserable meditator. It's a natural part of causation, that they're, they're going to happen. They're going to be good days, they're going to be bad days. And the question is not whether they're good or bad days, but it's how you live with them, how you deal with them. In other words, you try to emphasize the positive potential in any mental state or in any moment of time, and you don't focus on the negative. But in focusing on the positive, you also at the same time can't let yourself be complacent. You've got to realize that when things are going well, you can't get lazy, you can't get complacent about them. So those are some of the lessons that the teaching on karma relates to the practice of meditation. It helps explain one of the good motivations for why we meditate. Since intention is such a main factor in our lives, we have to learn how to look at intention so we can become more in charge of the intentions that we, that we act on. So this is why we meditate. You become more mindful, you become more discerning, you become more skilled in, in your intentions. The teaching on karma also helps explain why we focus on the present moment and why meditation is a doing. And it helps, as I said, with getting the perspective on how we approach the meditation as a skill, where we focus our, intention, our attention on things like intention, perception, and attention in the present. And it helps us with the proper attitudes to the ups and downs of meditation. Karma also helps with understanding wisdom, the development of wisdom. And very briefly, it helps us to realize that the issues that we have to deal with are creations of the mind, the sankharas, the intentions. And learning how to look at concentration as an activity, learning how to look at our ideas of self as an activity, learning how to look at discernment itself as an activity. These are the important attitudes that you have to develop in the meditation so that you can learn how to undo your clinging to these things. The Buddha's image of clinging is not so much that you have something that you hold on to and then, then you finally put it down and let go. The fact is that okay, you are creating this thing and the, the fact of your, your continued input is what keeps it going. When you learn, learn to see your input is what's keeping it going and that it's harmful, you stop. This is what's meant by cessation. Okay, you've been doing these things and you just stop doing them. So it's not so much that you've been holding this thing and you finally get to let it go like that and it's still there. Once you let it go, a lot of these things disappear. It's because you've been doing, you've been contributing to their, their existence through your own fabrication. So let's look at one major discussion of this in terms of how the doing relates to the concentration. <coughs> I included passages 10 and 11. First, to give a general perspective on the developing of discernment. And the Buddha says that this is the way to leading to discernment. When visiting a priest or contemplative, and priest here means, it's another word for arahant. Okay. Not just any old, any old priest, okay? <laughs> In fact, some priests you don't want to go and ask. Um, <clears throat> you ask, what is skillful? What is unskillful? What's blameworthy, what's blameless, what should be cultivated, what should not be cultivated. And the crucial question is, what when I do it will be for my long-term harm and suffering? 
or what when I do it will be for my long-term welfare and happiness. Now, the beginning of wisdom is to see that one, long-term happiness is better than short-term. And two, it's going to depend on your actions. It's not going to just come floating in. But once you have that basic attitude, okay, it's, it, okay, the happiness lies in the doing, and long-term happiness is better than short-term, okay, that's the beginning of wisdom right there. Passage 11 points out what we said earlier, that the test for wisdom is that you know, things that are pleasant to do that will lead to suffering or things that are hard to do that lead to, to pleasure, how you get yourself to <coughs> act properly, i.e., do the things that would lead to long-term pleasure, even though they may give short-term, short-term suffering. It all sounds very basic and very practical, and the thing is that, okay, Buddhist wisdom, at least as the Buddha taught it in the early teachings, takes that same attitude all the way through. I mean, the Four Noble Truths come out of this, that there are certain things that you do, that you like to do, but are going to lead to suffering, i.e. craving. We take craving, as, as my teacher once said, we take craving as our friend. And then we don't like the suffering that our friend brings along. You know? And the question is, okay, you have to learn how to see that the craving is something that you're doing that's causing suffering, so that for that reason you've got to drop it. No matter how much you like the craving, you've got to learn how to drop it because it causes suffering. And the wisdom lies in learning how to do that. In passage 12, the Buddha gives an example of how to do this in terms of concentration practice. And while we're going through this, I'd like you to think back on the Buddha's instructions to Rahula about action and learning how to purify your action, because it's the same pattern that's taught to the seven-year-old is now being applied to the concentrated mind. In other words, you look for what you're doing, you see any, in the Rahula instructions, you look for any harm that your action is causing. If you see the harm, then you learn how not, then you stop doing that particular action. In this case, the Buddha is saying, you look at the state of concentration you get into, look to see if there's any disturbance still in that state of concentration, and particularly look to see where that disturbance comes from what you're doing. When you see that the disturbance comes from your intentional action, then you drop it. In this case, you, then you will go to a more subtle perception, and then you develop the intention to stay there. Let's go through the, the passage in a little bit of detail. Okay. Okay, I've heard that on one occasion the Blessed One was staying at Sawati in the Eastern Monastery, the palace of Megara's mother. Um, just as an aside, Megara's mother is actually Megara's daughter. That's Wisaka. You may have heard of Lady Wisaka, the number one lay female disciple of the Buddha. And the reason she, her, her father was named Megara, and the reason she's called Megara's mother was because as a little child she went and she learned the Dharma from the Buddha, and then she went back and she taught her father and brought him to the Dharma. And because she was the person who brought him to the Dharma, they call her his mother, okay? Megara's mother. They had this palace there east of Sawati, and then they gave it to the monks. So back in the days when it had, was a palace, and it had all these elephants and horses and people and everything, and there was gold and silver, etc. Then when they gave it to be a monastery, they emptied it out. That's important to understand. For the This is the basic image of the, of the text. Okay. In the evening, Venerable Ananda, coming out of seclusion, went to the Blessed One, and on arrival, having bowed down, sat to one side. As he was sitting there, he said to the Blessed One, on one occasion, when the Blessed One was staying among the Sakyans in a Sakyan town named Nagaraka, there, face to face with the Blessed One, I heard this. Face to face, I learned this. 
I now remain fully in the dwelling of emptiness. Did I hear that correctly? Learn it correctly? Attend to it correctly? Remember it correctly? And the Buddha said, basically, says, yes. Okay. And then he gives an analogy. He says, just as this palace of Megara's mother is empty of elephants, cattle, and mares. Remember, back when she, the family was living there, it would have elephants, cattle, and mares. And now they don't have it. Empty of gold and silver, empty of the assemblies of women and men. There is only this non-emptiness, the singleness based on the community of monks. Okay, that's the analogy. The palace used to have all those things, and now that it's stripped of those things, it's a lot more peaceful. Okay. Even so, Ananda, a monk, not attending to the perception of or mental note of village, not attending to the perception of human being, attends to the singleness based on the perception of wilderness. His mind takes pleasure, finds satisfaction, settles, and indulges in its perception of wilderness. In other words, what you've got here is a monk going out into the wilds and sitting down and just noting the fact that I'm now in the wilderness. And just stick with that perception. Not only sticking with it, notice it takes pleasure, finds satisfaction, settles, and indulges in that perception of wilderness. It really gets hooked on it. When you think about it, you've probably had experiences like this. You've gone out into the wilds, and after a couple of days, human society begins to seem really unreal. Yeah. And all the things that you do in, in your daily activity, you end up ask, why? Why bother? It's like that cartoon they had in the New Yorker years back of these people walking down the street of New York with this big pole over their heads and a line hanging down, a little carrot. And they're following the carrot. And one of the characters, though, was driving the carrot down the road. Because you know? <laughs> so. when you get out in the wilds, all, all, these things start seem, seeming meaningless and unreal. I had an experience. We've got a little time here. I can tell a story. <coughs> We're climbing Angel's Landing one time in Zion Park, Zion National Park. Have you ever been to Angel's Landing? It's this crazy fin of rock that comes out of the side of the canyon. And what you have is this very narrow, narrow passageway. It's about this wide. And it's 1,200 feet drop on this side, 1,200 feet drop on this side. And the passage is only this wide. And there's no, no railing. And that's what gets you over to this fin. And then you can climb the fin. And even as you climb the fin, it's straight down. And you've got, at that point, you've got a chain to hold on to. And on our first time going there, we were on the way getting to Angel's Landing. And it was a hot day, and so I had taken off my rope and tied it as a sash around my waist. And I would taken off my, slip, my sandals, because sandals are useless on Slick Rock. Put them in my back pocket. And so we're climbing up the path. And about 100 yards away, these people coming down the path. And within about five minutes, you knew a lot about these people because they were telling you everything. <laughs> Very loudly talking about they, they worked at some modeling and acting agency in Los Angeles. And they were talking about all the actors and, and actresses and models they were working for or working with. And I kept thinking, I mean, here we are in the wilderness. Why are you thinking about Los Angeles? I mean, this is crazy, bringing your modeling agency into Zion Park. The climax of the story is when they come around the bend and they see me. <laughs> and they say, look, 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 doesn't it feel like we're in Tibet? <laughs> quick, quick, get a picture, get a picture. Oh, make sure you've got his bare feet. Look at his bare feet, bare feet. <laughs> And that was the point when I wished I had an agent of my own. <laughs> so there's a difference when you go to the wilderness of 
being in the wilderness and still being in Los Angeles. Okay? Okay. And so here we have a case of the monk who's in the wilderness. Okay, and after he's just settled into that thought, this really just totally free of human beings. None of the stuff that you have to deal with at home is just wilderness. Okay, once his mind is really settled into that perception, okay, then you know. Okay, okay whatever disturbances that would exist based on the perception of village are not present in this state of awareness or this mode of perception. Whatever disturbances would exist based on the perception of human being are not present. I, you're, you're alone in the wilderness. There is only this modicum of disturbance, the singleness based on the perception of wilderness, i.e. the disturbance is still caused by his perception. But that's the only disturbance at the moment. So he further discerns that, okay, this mode of perception is empty of the perception of village. This mode of perception is empty of the perception of human being. There is only this non-emptiness, the singleness based on the perception of wilderness. Thus he regards it as empty of whatever is not there, and whatever remains he discerns as present. There is this. And so this, his entry into emptiness, accords with actuality, is undistorted in meaning and pure. Do you begin to see the connection with Rahula? Okay, you're purifying your mind. You're purifying your views about what's actually happening. And you're doing it by looking at this state of concentration that you've created. Once you've created it and once you've settled in and really been able to sort of plunk down into it so you're solidly in it, then you step back a bit and you look at, okay, what's, is there any disturbance left here? Okay, if there's the areas where there's no disturbance, you notice, okay, it's empty of disturbance. So you see precisely where the disturbance is. And the disturbance is centered around that perception which you are intending to hold on to. Perception, intention, right there. That's where the disturbance is. So in the next step, you drop that perception. I.e., you see that you are creating this, in this case it's hard to call it harm because it's on a very subtle level, but you've been creating this disturbance, so you drop it. Now because this follows the same pattern as the teachings to Rahula, it also involves the same qualities of mind that the Rahula instructions are trying to develop. I.e., compassion for yourself. You want to let go of disturbance. Integrity. You admit what's there and you admit what's not there. And you admit that the disturbance is caused by what you're doing. And then finally, lack of conceit. Instead of saying, well, I, this must be the true me that I'm here, that I've got here. And this is an issue that comes up in deeper states of meditation. You know, the, the true me is the emptiness or the true me is the infinite consciousness. You look at it as an activity. Cause and effect. Skillful cause not, well, not quite skillful, skillful enough. You see, it could be more skillful, so you work on it, which is why you go to the next stage. Further, Ananda, the monk not attending to the perception of human being, not attending to the perception of wilderness, tends to the singleness based on the perception of earth. Okay, just think about the earthness of earth as an object. His mind takes pleasure, finds satisfaction, settles and indulges in its perception of earth. Just as a bull's hide is stretched free from wrinkles with a hundred stakes, even so, without attending to the ridges and hollows, the river ravines and tracts of stumps and thorns, the craggy irregularities of this earth, he attends to the singleness based on the perception of earth, i.e. just that one mental label, earth. When I sit here and meditate, you just think that, okay, we, this is earth, that's earth, the people are earth, the buildings are earth, just everything is earth, that one label covers everything solid. And it just goes for the entire planet. So this is bigger than wilderness even. I mean, you can even have earthness in New York City. 
New York City tends to make it hard to have a perception of wilderness, but okay, earth applies everywhere. And earth is also a less disturbing perception than, than, than wilderness, because actually wilderness brings in the issues of tigers, all the dangers of wilderness, but earth is just plain old earth. No matter what happens to it, it's always going to be earth. Solidity. So you're getting a more, a more subtle, subtle perception. And then in the same way, okay, once you've settled and indulged in it, I mean, you've really learned to enjoy and get sort of attached to this, then you begin to look at it. Okay, what kind of disturbances are left in this mode of perception in the mind? And you see that the only disturbance left is just that one perception. Perception of Earth. So the remaining stages of concentration, he does the same thing. And again, it's, it involves those same qualities that the Buddha is trying to teach to Rahula on a, sort of an, an inner level, sort of an inner integrity and an inner compassion and an inner lack of conceit about this. Learning to see things as cause and effect, intention and the disturb, disturbance or harm that's coming from the intention. And you go all the way through to you get to the point where you get to what's called the themeless concentration of awareness. In other words, the awareness, the awareness is just there. There's, the mind is settled and it's concentrated, but it doesn't have an object. It's just aware fully, without even a label going on in the mind. Again, instead of taking that as the ground of being, he says, okay, is there still any disturbance here? And he says, yes, this is mentally fabricated. There's still an element of intention in keeping that going. This is very subtle. The only, reason, the only way you get to see it is if you're really honest with yourself about where there's where is the, the presence or absence of pain, the presence or absence of disturbance. Okay, once you see that the only disturbance left is this process of perception, you see the process of perception as it's actually, not perception, fabrication. Fabrication as it's actually happening, then you drop it. And then dropping it, okay, then you, then you reach release. And you look at the details on your own because we're, we're, we're going to run out of time pretty soon. But, um, What's important here is that the basic pattern follows all the way through, and that relates to the question that the woman in the back gave yesterday. This question of, okay, what am I doing that's causing stress? Can I change it? And sort of the compassion and the integrity and the lack of the conceit that you develop in pursuing that, okay, then you apply that to the meditation and you apply the same qualities, you apply the same question essentially. Where in here is there a disturbance that I'm causing? When you see that that it's caused by a particular intention focused on a particular perception. You drop that perception. And in the course of developing the mind, it goes to more and more refined perceptions until finally you get to a state that doesn't even have a label. And you realize that that too is fabricated. You drop the fabrication and you're released. At this point, the Buddha said, this, the emptiness that comes with this release, okay, you've still got the body and the sense spheres are still acting or acting. But otherwise, there's no disturbance in the mind. The mind is not causing any suffering around that. And he says, this is, is the emptiness that is accords with actuality, is undistorted in meaning, pure, superior, and unsurpassed. And at the end of the sutta, the Buddha goes on to say, as he said to Rahula, anyone who wants to purify their understanding of emptiness has to do it this way. And anyone who has really reach the unsurpassed state of emptiness, this is the state of emptiness they've reached.
This is how you do it. So it's the same process, just applied in a lot more refined part of your experience. Are there any questions? Yes. Um, first, thank you so much for the weekend of really profound teaching. Um, I was listening uh, very intently to the, especially to the the five methods of dealing with distraction that you enumerated, which is a, a real interest to me. I've over the years sat with many Vipassana teachers, Cornfield, um, Sean Salzburg, etc., talk about when there's a distracting thought, often anger or fear, to let go of the thought, but go into the body, but not with the first intention of just relaxing it, but to ask, to first accept that it's there, to investigate it, and without identifying, because you haven't identified with the thought, but you've gone to the body, to, to ask if there's something deeper or older that is asking for acceptance. Now, of course, these teachers come from a therapeutic background. And I know that the teaching is not in the Pali Canon, because I've searched through that and looking for a teaching similar. Some of them justified using the example of Saka with the anger-eating demon, you know, which is in the Pali Canon. Others created the story about the Buddha inviting Mara in for tea, which is not in the Pali Canon, though it's a fascinating story. But I wonder what you think about that method of, of instead of going into the body, as you said, in the fourth method, and just simply relaxing where the tension is, but first asking with an accepting, open mind, is there something behind this tension that's older and deeper that is asking for acceptance and awareness? If it works, fine. Good. Yeah. Thanks. Yes? I'm just wondering, you know, sort of a little bit along the same lines, the way that I've learned this practice is to start with being with the breath and then to um, open to other types of phenomena, such as thoughts and sounds and, you know, other sensations and so forth. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this can be either, um, you know, starts coming back to the breath as an anchor or just doing You know, just being open to the experience without without having the breath as necessarily and, um, consciously as an anchor, just returning to the breath if you're lost or whatever. And I'm just wondering, um, when you talk about the practice, when you describe the meditation practice so far, you know, that you're just with us for a couple of days, I don't hear you talking about that. You know, like, I mean, for me, that's very, you know, sort of helpful. To, to, and I know maybe that's what you'd say to do, do it. It's helpful, it's helpful. Yeah. Um, And yet I can, I'm kind of getting the sense that there are other ways to, to practice as well. That the whole issue of concentration is that you you work with, what's, with what works. But other than, even other than, so concentrate, because I've also been taught that concentration is the sort of the thing that helps us to open to being It's an end enough to, to merit a, a fair amount of work, let's put it that way. It's not an end in itself, but it does take work. And 
so this, the kind of concentration that's based on an openness like that is a good way to sort of just settle it down and relax for a while. But ultimately, you've got to get a foundation. And, and you know, I personally found the breath to be a very effective one. But you need something that keeps you grounded. And then, in order to see the real subtle parts of the mind, you've got to really get into those more grounded states. Fixating sounds bad. Yeah. <laughs> well, but you want. It is, it is in, in the way that I'm using it. Yeah, yeah. I'm, mm-hmm. using, I'm using it in that mm-hmm. purpose, but it's not yeah. kind of that's what you're saying. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to distinguish between what you're saying and. Okay, there's a certain amount, there's a certain stage in the practice when you have to say, okay, look, I'm going to stay with the breath, and anything that comes up, I'm just not going to go there. And as soon as I sense myself wandering off, got to come back. Because unless the mind gets really still that way, there's a lot of subtle stuff going on in the mind you're not going to see. And then once the mind is still, though, mm-hmm. then open to other things. Just radiate, you know, that this, you know, awareness filling your body. Because that, what that does, it, it does several things at once. One is that you don't feel like you're being clamped down. And also, developing a state of concentration which tends to be more all around like this helps to get rid of a lot of the blind spots in your mind. Because we all carry blind spots one way or another. And one, a very pointed, you know, one-pointed kind of concentration does not help, does not help get through those blind spots, because your whole body becomes a blind spot. That's where you're opening everything up. You're grounded, but you're open. Um, and it's keeping the balance between the two is the real trick. Because sometimes you can just open up and start drifting away. So I'm kind of right here, but it's not—it's—it's it's not that it's you're clamping down. In the beginning, that there, there will have to be kind of a clamping down, just as it's like learning how to walk. You're not going to walk gracefully the first time you take your first step. You're just kind of clum, you know, lumbering through it. But after a while, you begin to realize, okay, you know, I, I don't have to tense up this part of the body. I don't have to tense up that part of the body. You see a little kid walking, and they use way too much of their body just to make a step. And then they kind of pare it down, what's really necessary to take a step. And it's the same with the concentration. There will be stages where you're clamping down too much. And then you begin to, as, as with the instructions, okay, you realize, okay, that's too strong. The results are not right. Let's loosen up a little bit. And then begin to gain, gain, gain a sense of what's just right. And just doing that, you learn an awful lot about the mind. My one question about your that, that particular technique is sometimes in order to see those issues, okay, what lies behind the anger requires a lot of concentration. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's written about extensively in A Path of Heart, which is one of the most fundamental texts of mm-hmm. American Vipassana mm-hmm. teachers, but he talks about that it comes after samadhi, mm-hmm. that this part of sati is something that's developed after a number of years of concentrated mm-hmm. technique, and it's only when you've gotten to a place where you're, you can 
focus mm-hmm. that you can do it. It's not something that you would jump into in your first six months. Right, right. And also there's the issue that some of the questions might be instead of, okay, what's in there that needs acceptance, you might just say, okay, what assumption lies behind this anger? Because that's one I've always found useful. And you have to realize, okay, I'm not the National Bureau of Standards. You know. <laughs> it's just because people don't meet up to my standards doesn't mean that, you know, they, that they deserve my anger. You know. But there is a, a different cultural view uh, in anger in the East is anger in the West. Like in the West, we would say, I'm so angry with my roommate because they didn't tell me that somebody called while I was out. Mm-hmm. In the East, no one would ever say that. They would, say they would think it. They would think it. <laughs> but They're human. Come on. <laughs> and, uh, there's a difference, though, in, in the way I think the Buddha was writing about anger and fear than we commonly use those terms. We tend to think more in terms of you know childhood traumas and that kind of thing. Whereas over there they say, okay, I'm angry at my roommate because he didn't call me. You know? <laughs> and then the question is, okay, why should that be a cause of anger? There's a great passage in the Pali Canon. They say, this person has done something to me that I don't like. What should I expect? This person has done good things to people I don't like. What should I expect? And bad things to people I do like. What should I expect? I mean, that's, that's, that's part of being a human being. You remind me of a second question, though. The role of karma, in, in right on the view of karma, in developing upekka, mm-hmm. is it fundamental? Oh, yeah. Okay. Definitely. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, when you use the phrase drop it, but even if it's one of the last remaining constructs, whether it's per- feeling of perception, non perception, awareness, and your drop, is that that these are. Constructive thoughts that are no longer even occurring, or they popped in, but you've let them go just like you would with your normal meditation practice. You're just sort of realizing that that was a construct and just letting it float off. You realize that it's a construct, and the trick, though, is not to replace it with another intention. Because what we usually do is you drop this intention, so you pick up that one. Mm-hmm. And then you get to final point, and all you have is that little sort of you know, command central that's choosing the next intention. And you realize that no matter what I intend, there's going to be an element of disturbance. And then at, at that point, you see the open, okay, there's, there is a possibility of not intending anything anymore. So it's a very radically different kind of dropping. Yes? Yeah. Might take it two two parts at a time, and then three, and then four, and then you finally realize where you have to be. It's like listening to music. Um, have you ever tried listening to Bach and all the voices all at once? You have to put your mind in that kind of. It's it's a different kind of focus. For me, it's a physically different kind of focus listening to Bach that way. And it's, and, it's, and it's the same kind of focus you need in order to be your whole body all at once. But one of the, I learned a lot of um, meditation techniques from the women at Wanasokaram. Prior to my ordination, they were the ones who got sponsored the ordination and learned a lot of interesting things from them. And there was one, one of the women who had worked on a technique where she would say, if I focus on one spot in my body, it's not enough. I've got to focus on two to start out with. 
And so she would start with the top of her head and the base of her spine. And then connect them up. And then from there it's very easy to go out to the whole body. Yes? I have heard that uh, part of the Buddhist teachings is that an awareness of our death is an important thing. We bring a sense of immediacy to the present moment. Mm-hmm. And that even you know, that, that bringing that awareness of your the preciousness of life the present moment, and that we are all going to die soon. We don't get to the bottom first. Even if you get to Nirvana first, you're going to die. <laughs> How does that tie into the, the practices that you Well, thinking about death can be either skillful or, un- or unskillful, depending on where, you, where that thought leads you. And if you look at the process of dying in, the, in terms of karma, you say, okay, I've got to get my act together before I die. Because... The process is going to happen. One, the process of death itself is going to be pretty difficult unless I'm really mindful and concentrated. And secondly, the state of my mind is going to have a big impact on where I go. So therefore, it's not that, wow, I might die. Ah, despair. You think, okay, I've got just a limited amount of time to get my act together, to do what needs to be done. The Buddha has you ask the question, when the sun rises, instead of just thinking what a beautiful sunrise, say, this could be my last day. Am I ready to go? And the answer is almost always no. And then the next question is, well, why? What unfinished business do you have? And look at it in terms of what unfinished business do you have? And then just go ahead and do what needs to be done. And the death meditation in always is not just death, 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 death. That's okay, limited amount of time. The most important thing to work on is the mind. Let's work on the mind. Because when you go, you drop the body, you drop but the qualities of the mind go. So let's work on those. Yes? I'm going to just try to... I'm still... I'm very confused. I don't want to really take a lot of time. Just um, along the lines... What is your name? Yeah. Josh. Josh was saying um, about um, working with fear and I just, I mean, once again, I, I just do in the way that, that I've learned to practice. If a thought comes up, there's an awareness that thinking is happening. Mm-hmm. If there's fear, awareness of fear, or, or sadness, or um, sound, or mm-hmm. is that different from what you're saying? That's one of the techniques. Oh, okay. Because mm-hmm. you, you note that it's there, and then you come back. Right, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. In terms of understanding your own suffering, mm-hmm. is there any value in going back to the past and thinking about or deconstructing the traumatic events that occurred in your life? A certain amount, but not. It, it shouldn't become obsessive, let's put it that way. <laughs> You're talking to someone who's never been into psychotherapy, so I can't. But, um. So, just in terms of the, um, of the meditation, because in, in, I haven't had a 
spread lots of goodwill to the people in that in whatever incident that was and just come back. Because what you're learning, that I mean, even in psychotherapy, the whole point is to discover that you have certain patterns of behavior you picked up, which may have been useful then, but they're not useful now. And you learn the lesson that they're not useful now by really looking at right now, and then learning to think that there are other alternative ways of responding to that situation. Now, this is what a lot of what a teacher will do. If you see that you have a particular pattern, you can say, what other ways are there of dealing with this? And the teacher will recommend them. So understanding your suffering doesn't necessarily mean analyzing it or where it comes from. Not trace, you don't have to trace it all the way back to age three, no. <laughs> Just know that you can see these patterns in the present moment they are causing suffering. And if you learn how to realize that the pattern is unnecessary, then drop it. That's really all you need to understand. Yes? Uh, a bit of a practical question on the breathing. And uh, leaning in and out as far as the, uh, the section of the day of breathing out, uh, all the pores in your body, mm-hmm. breathing out and breathing in. I've noticed in a number of meditations, uh, even in body speak, that the mind generates an image to mm-hmm. go with that. And my question was, Cling. Go ahead and cling. But I'd say what you want to get more and more into is the actual physical sensation. You know, the mental image will help get you there. And then, as my teacher once said, this this is an analogy that may not apply to New York, but he said it's like having a water buffalo. You call the water buffalo, the water buffalo comes. Once it's there, you don't have to keep calling it. Right. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. You ask yourself exactly what assumptions have been violated. And then you ask yourself, do I really want to hold on to that assumption? And part of it is, okay, human beings should act in a certain way, right? But then you look around, most human beings don't. And if you let yourself get upset by that, you're setting yourself for all kinds of problems. Now, this may sound like lowering your standards, but it means that you just learn not to you know, put yourself in a position where you're going to get hurt by that kind of activity. It's, and it's strategically, it's a much better position. Yes.
Talking about the brain versus the mind. I mean, if you've really developed strong mindfulness, then even as the brain stops, starts to go, you're mindful of what's happening. My teacher was in a bad automobile accident. John Swat was in a bad automobile accident towards the end of his life. Suffered a lot of brain damage. And although he couldn't give Dharma talks the way he had before, he was still a very mindful person. And he would make comments, and he said, my brain isn't working the way it used to. And he wasn't upset. He wasn't bothered by it. But the very last conversation I had with him, he's saying, he says, I'm getting really weird perceptions out of this brain right now. <laughs> but the fact that he was able to step back was a skill he had learned in the meditation. And then he went on to say, he's, oh, and that thing that I got through the meditation, that hasn't changed. So that's why you really want to get that far. Because if it's simple states of concentration, okay, they can deteriorate and leave you. But if you develop something that's more solid in terms of the insight, okay, that can carry you through, even as the brain deteriorates. Because seeing, seeing him go through brain damage and then seeing my father go through Parkinson's dementia, two very, very different things. And the big difference was just that, the training versus the lack of training. Okay. Yes? Like saying, I can make up my mind, but I can't make up my mind. <laughs> Question, yeah. He said to uh, learn how to master an intention. Can you give an example of that? Learn how to what? Master an intention. Mm -hmm. Well, basically looking at your intentions and saying, okay, is this going to lead to skillful things? And no matter how much you want to do it, if it's going to lead to harm, he's like, nope, it's not going to do that. But that also goes into the, these qualities of attention and perception that we talked about as well. Learning how to frame your approach to life so that it brings forth more skillful intentions. Question back here? Yes. It's a good way of beginning to settle down, especially the mind that doesn't like being clamped down in one object. To say, okay, now you're allowed to focus on things, but be very conscious about it. But there comes a point where you really have to say, okay, enough, I'm going to settle down. And as for the bells, okay, they can just come right through me. I don't have to you know, feel disturbed by them. Feeling, when you're feeling confined by your object, it's, you know, it's kind of a little vacation for the mind. But you really have to be able to say, okay, I'm going to be solidly here. Because there are two kinds of choices awareness. There's the, 
this one that you're describing. Then there's another one that comes towards the end. It's what they call the themeless concentration of awareness, where there is no object at all. And that's not a matter of moving from one object, and that's just there's no object. You're not focusing on anything, it's just aware and right there. But in order to really see the subtle movements of the mind, you have to get it so it's very still. It's like watching the clouds move up in the sky. If you're out in a field with no reference, point of reference, you look up at the clouds and after a while you get lost. You don't know which ones are moving, which ones are staying still, how fast they're going. But here in New York City, you've got, you can look at a building and you can see the cloud go right past the building. You know. Okay, the building's still. You can see the movement of the cloud. So there's certain things in, that you're not going to be able to see in the mind unless you're really still, that you won't be able to see with, that, with the choices of awareness. Can we break for a few minutes? Okay. Stand for about 10, 15 minutes and we'll come back. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.